we're talking about defending the gospel, defending uh, the gospel. And this is so very, very important. Galatians chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. It's pretty strong language, I'd say. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask in these next few minutes that we will come to grips with the significance, the importance, the glory, the grandeur of the gospel. And Lord, we dare not trifle with it. We dare not in some way seek to change it, to amend it as if we know better than you. Lord, let us hear the defense of the gospel. Let us stand in defense of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I was in a bookstore probably 15 years ago or so ago, back when there were bookstores that you could actually go to, Christian bookstores, you could go to and put your hands on actual literal books. And I was looking on the shelves, as I sometimes would do, and I came across a book. The title of the book caught my eye. The cover of the book caught my eye. But the author of the book was not somebody that I had known or knew anything about. His name was R.T. Kendall. So I picked the book up just to peruse it. I thumbed through it. But then I do what I always do. I turned it over to the back and looked at the little bio that's on the bottom of the book, next to the author's picture, the little bio, and there it was in that little three, four, five lines of bio. Born and raised in Ashland, Kentucky. Born and raised in Ashland, Kentucky. Now, maybe that doesn't interest all of you, but whenever I come across something that's done by somebody from the tri-state or even from our state, I'm always fascinated by it. I always want to learn a little bit more about it. I want to find out some more about it. So I, I read that particular book. I've read a couple of other books by R.T. Kendall. I've read parts of some other of his works, uh, though I've not read all of those. Uh, but I was introduced that day to a man that, that I did not know. R.T. Kendall, as I said, was born and raised in Ashland, Kentucky. He grew up in a Nazarene church there in Ashland, Kentucky. He went away to college and got his bachelor's degree from a Nazarene university. He earned his master of divinity degree from uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And then he went across the waters to England and uh, he earned his PhD from Oxford. While he was working on his PhD, he um, was pastoring some churches that were there. And after he finished, he was there pastoring a church for a time until he got a call from the Westminster Chapel. Now, you might not be familiar with the Westminster Chapel if you haven't studied much of church history, but it's a famous church. It's been there since the early 1800s. Uh, you would probably know the church, if you know it, by some of the preachers who have been there who have been very prolific authors, uh, men like G. Campbell Morgan or John Henry Jowett or Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, those are some names that might trigger something in your mind. These were men who have books. If you have libraries of books uh, you know, about the Bible, commentaries on the Bible, you probably have some of their books on your shelves. I know I do. But it was this church, Westminster Church, right in the heart of London, that called R.T. Kendall, a man who was born and raised in Ashland, Kentucky, to become their pastor. And for the next 25 years, he pastored the church there. Uh, he, was a, he was a prolific author as well, and that's how I met him, was through a book. Uh, since uh, that time, he retired. He moved back to the United States, moved to the Keys, uh, lived down in the Florida Keys, and then now he's moved over outside of Nashville. He's about 83 or 84 uh, years of age. 
R.T. Kendall tells a story in one of his books that I have about a chair that they had in the Westminster Chapel. The chair was on loan to them from the Congressional Library. They didn't own it at the time. It was simply on loan to them. And the chair was supposedly the chair of George Whitfield. Now again, let me make sure you know who George Whitfield is. George Whitfield is a famous preacher, uh, the Billy Graham of his day, if you will. From, he lived from 1714 to 1770. Uh, he was one of the men, along with Jonathan Edwards and, and uh, John Wesley and some others, that sparked the first great awakening, the first great revival, especially in the colonies, uh, the 13 colonies. Uh, he was one of the men that God used to spark the, the first great awakening. And they had this chair that came from the Congressional Library that supposedly belonged to George Whitfield from all of those uh, centuries before. Uh, R.T. Kendall said that people would literally come by in order to sit in that chair or to stand by that chair and to have their picture made with that chair. It was as if there was some kind of special anointing in the wood or something. You know, if we can just sit in that chair or just to be able to say I was close to something that had belonged at one time to George Whitfield. Uh, R.T. says that from Billy Graham to Arthur Blissett, there were dozens of ministers who came by to see that chair, sit in the chair, have their picture made with the chair. Well, a couple of years before R.T. retired, um, some of his deacons came to him and said, listen, we're concerned that the Congressional Library is going to come and they're going to ask for the chair back. This chair was a draw. People would come. You'd tour this church. You might not come to our church to tour the buildings, but you would go to Westminster Chapel and you'd tour the buildings. And people would sometimes come just to see this chair. And they were concerned that the Congressional Library would call and ask for the chair back. And so some of the deacons came to R.T. Kendall and said, you know what we need to do? We need this, this thing to buy this chair. And R.T. Kendall said, you know, that's a good idea. That's a, that's a good idea. So he decided that what he would do is he would first contact Sotheby's of London. The, the chair had some fabric on it, not a lot of fabric, but it some, had some fabric on it that was badly worn. And one of the things, if they were able to buy the chair, is that they wanted to be able to, you know, put new upholstery on the chair. And so the question was, if we put new upholstery on this chair, do we somehow devalue the chair, decrease the value of this chair, this antique chair? So they contacted Sotheby's of London, which they're experts on antiques. They came out and they, they looked at the chair and they studied the chair. And then they wrote back to R.T. Kendall and they said, there's two things you need to know. Number one, this is not Whitfield's chair. <laughs> this chair is clearly in the period of 1840 to 1850. And the second thing they said is, it's not going to hurt the value of the chair if you <laughs> reupholster it. <laughs> now, there are people all over the world who are showing these pictures around that they sat in that chair. They sat in Whitfield's chair, and they believe in their mind that they sat in a chair that George Whitfield at one time, you know, two or three centuries ago, sat in himself, but it's nothing more than a fake. It's nothing more than a counterfeit. It's not the real thing. I want to take that illustration, and I want to use it about what we're talking about today. There are a lot of people that are sitting in a counterfeit gospel. There are a lot of people who have stood by and stand with a counterfeit, a fake gospel. It's not the true gospel. Uh, things have been added to it or things have been taken away from it. And in the process, they've changed the divine formula. And the result is that you no longer have the power of God to save. You no longer have the true gospel. Some people have called some of these gospels the prosperity gospel. Others have called it the health and wealth gospel. Some have said it's the name it and claim it gospel. Others call this spurious gospel the political gospel or the feel-good gospel. Uh, some say it's the positive thinking gospel. And there's probably a few dozen other variations, maybe more than a few dozen other variations that you could give to it. But they are people who have taken what was the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in some way they have changed it, and in the process of changing it, they have diminished the glory 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have diminished the power of the gospel of Jesus. One author writing about this says, there are obviously those occasions when, as in the situation in Galatia, the gospel becomes domesticated by the pervasive character of the culture, the political climate, the idiosyncrasies of place or preacher, the gospel is taken over and transformed into an ideology. In the face of such occasions, Paul's words here are apt. It is Christ's gospel, not capitalism's gospel or the third world's gospel or Reverend Smith's gospel. As a matter of fact, if you notice in Verse 7 of chapter 1, it's called the gospel of Christ. It's not your gospel. It's not some church's gospel. It's not society's gospel. It is Christ's gospel. And we have no right, we have no business somehow changing or altering that gospel as if we know better than God. And when we do so, add something to it or take something away from it, what is the truth of the gospel, when we do so, then we diminish the gospel. We even destroy the power of the gospel. When I talk about the gospel, I'm talking about the life of Jesus Christ, the virgin-born, sinless Son of God who lived in complete obedience to God and the law of God in its letter and in its spirit. I'm talking about the death of Jesus Christ where he died for our sins He took on himself our sins and the penalty and punishment of our sins. And he suffered separation from God on our behalf. Where he was taken down from the cross and he was placed in a tomb and they thought they had silenced him forever. But on that Easter Sunday morning, he arose victorious over sin, over death, over hell, and over the grave. And where he was seen again and again. He was seen again and again and ascended back to the Father where he offers eternal life to anyone, to anyone who was willing to believe on him, who was willing to believe his gospel. When you do anything with what I just shared with you, which is the outline of the gospel, when you do anything to take away from that or to add to that, you are tampering with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a dangerous thing to do. Let me illustrate it to you by a story that I have told before. But if you will, laugh when you're supposed to laugh. When Mary and I were newlyweds, we'd only been married three or four months, I suppose, we wanted to invite our pastor to our apartment. We lived at the Bossa Nova apartments. There were three-story apartments. We were on the bottom floor, so you had to go down some steps to get to our apartments. Two-bedroom, kitchen, a living room area, of course, a bathroom. We wanted to invite our pastor to, and his wife to come to our apartment because we wanted to be able to say thank you. We appreciate so much. We appreciate so much all you've done for us. Mary has spent her whole life under his ministry. It was in his ministry where God saved me, where he called me to preach, where ultimately I would get my first ministry, full-time ministry opportunity. And so there was a lot of things that we wanted to say to say thank you to he and his wife. And so we invited them to come over on a particular night. That, That day, Mary and I finished our jobs. We came home that evening. And when we got there, we started busy trying to get ready for their arrival. Now, I don't know anything about cooking, so I wasn't one that was working in the kitchen. I was doing other things. Um, but Mary was busy in the kitchen cooking, and you could smell it. And it, isn't it wonderful when you walk into a house when you've got things cooking on the stove? It's unbelievably delightful to walk into that room. One of the things that she was fixing for that dinner was something that she had fixed on a number of occasions before I had had uh, these, things, these biscuits fixed by her myself even before we were married. And these biscuits that I'm talking about weren't the kind that come out of a roll where you hit it on the side of the countertop and then you cut them off and lay them on the pan. Uh, These biscuits were the homemade kind of biscuits. We called them cathead biscuits. I don't know if that's what all of you call it or not, but they're just big, great old big biscuits. And you, you put real butter. You never put margarine on a biscuit like this. That ruins the biscuit. You put real butter on the top of the biscuit, and then you can cut it open, and you put butter in the middle of the biscuit, or you can just melt some butter and baptize the biscuit. (laughs) Do it either way. 
Well, Mary was busy. She's making, you know, stirring and fixing and putting everything into the mixture that's supposed to go into this mixture. But, but here's what happened. When she went to the grocery store to buy the flour, she accidentally didn't notice it picked up just regular old flour rather than the self-rising flour. Now, for all of you cooks in the room, I understand you can take regular flour, you can take baking soda, and, you, know, you can fix it to make it a self-rising flour, but she didn't even recognize it. She thought she had picked up the self-rising flour and she had just gotten the regular flour. So she's mixed all this together with the regular flour. She's dished it out, put them on the, the, the pan, and she's put them in the oven, and they're now, they're now baking, they're now cooking, and you know, when they're supposed to be finished, of course, you're smelling all of that. And when they're supposed to be finished, she pulls them out, and they're flat as a pancake. <laughs> they're flat like a waffle. After they cooled a little while, they became hard as bricks, <laughs> hard as rocks. We, we joked with one another afterwards, after this, was all, this tragedy was all over. We, we joked with one another that we could have sold those biscuits to the Atlanta Flames, which was the, the professional hockey team, and they could have used them as pucks. Because if somebody had thrown one of those biscuits at you and it had hit you, it would have hurt you. And that's a sort of a funny story. But what happened? One item in a recipe got changed. When you change any item in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or you add something to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have created something that is no longer the gospel of Jesus. Think about it this way. So suppose for a moment we decide that we're just going to let Jesus be a good moral man. He was a great prophet. He was a great teacher. He was a great leader, somebody that we could aspire to and look up to. We could listen to what he had to say, and we could learn from him. But he really wasn't the sinless son of God. He really wasn't the one who obeyed in absolute perfection the law of God. He was just a man like the rest of us. What have you done? You've changed the formula of the gospel. Or just leave that part alone and think for a moment and you change this aspect of Jesus dying for our sins. And instead of Jesus dying for our sins, really, your problem isn't sin, that you are a sinner. Your real problem is, is that there's a little spark of God within you. And if you could just get out of the way, that the spark of God could somehow shine through you and people would see that God is in you, that your real problem isn't sin. You just need to think more positively about your life and you need to die to yourself like Jesus died. You just changed the formula of the gospel. Or leave those two alone and you come over here to this part about the resurrection of Jesus. And you say, well, it's, it's the resurrection of Jesus, but you know, maybe he wasn't really resurrected. Maybe they just didn't go to the right tomb. Or, or, or maybe uh, somebody came and took his body away. Or what's more familiar, Jesus didn't really rise physically. Jesus rose in some kind of a spiritual body. You've changed the formula of the gospel. Or you could say, one other place where you might change it. It's great that you've believed in Jesus, but it's not enough. You've got to believe in Jesus, and you've got to be baptized as well. You've got to believe in Jesus, and you've got to do these good works as well. You've got to believe in Jesus, and you've got to join a church as well. And you add something to it. You have changed the formula. And as with those biscuits, when you change any part of the formula or you add something to that formula, you have corrupted what God has divinely given to us and called his gospel, Christ's gospel. You don't change any part of it. It is divinely imparted to us. And we accept the gospel as is given to us in the scripture as Jesus gives to us. Um, there's one religious cult who says that Jesus was the spirit brother of Lucifer. As a matter of fact, it says all of us at one time were spirit brothers with Jesus and Lucifer. They were the product of Elohim and his many wives who gave birth to all these spirit babies who were just waiting for physical bodies on earth. But at one time, Jesus and Lucifer were spirit brothers. 
And so you change the person of Christ within this form of the gospel. Let me ask you a question. When you change the person of Christ, who the scripture says he is, what the scripture says he is, if you put your faith in that Jesus, are you saved? The answer is no. You cannot change the formula of the gospel and still have the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in this southern Galatian territory, southern Galatia territory, these churches that he's planted in his first missions trip. He's dealing with some people who have come in behind him and they have said, it's great what Paul has preached to you, but he didn't tell you everything you needed to know. He only told you a part of what you need to know. You see, it's good that you've believed on Jesus, but if you don't live according to the law of Moses, you're not saved. They changed the formula. And when they changed the formula, they perverted the gospel. They changed the gospel. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to these Galatian believers in order to correct this very thing. What I'm trying to say to you is we must defend the gospel. Why? The gospel is not something to be trifled with. The gospel is not something for you and I to think we can add to or correct or make something better out of. If we could just change the way it's presented, if we could just change some of the elements of the gospel, the result would be it would be a lot more appealing to people and a lot more people might be willing to come and hear it. You can't change the elements of the gospel. If you do, you no longer have the gospel. So the Apostle Paul writes to these believers about these people who have come in behind him and have sought to change the gospel. And I want you to notice just how severe he talks and how severe his words and how severe the, the, the outcome is here when you change the gospel. Actually, there's six things I want you to notice. First of all, I want you to listen to the tone of these words again. Listen to the tone of these words. Listen, verse six. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And if we have said before, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And listen to verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? In other words, it's in essence like saying, now you've listened to my words. Do you think I'm trying to please somebody? And if I'm trying to please somebody, is it God or is it men? Obviously it's not men. It's got to be God. For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant, a slave of Christ. Listen to his tone. When you read through here, you read through the whole book of Galatians. One person likened it to the Apostle Paul taking his sword. You could feel the sword coming out of its sheath as you're reading through the book of Galatians. Because it's severe. It's direct. It's controversial. It's, it's confronting there's a tone about what he's saying that he doesn't want you to miss. As a matter of fact, look for a moment over to chapter 4 in verse 20. Chapter 4 in verse 20. And notice what it says. Galatians chapter 4 verse 20. I would like to be present with you now and to change my... What's the next word? I would like to change my tone. For I have doubts about you. You hear even Paul recognizes there's something different in his tone in this particular letter that he's writing. As a matter of fact, I, I would tell you that there's something absent between verse 5 and verse 6 that's normally in the epistles of Paul. Do you know what it is? Well, just keep your place here. Look over, if you will, to, to Ephesians. Let's just see what he normally puts in in, these early, in this early part of his letters. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 15. He says, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. 
do not cease to give thanks for you. Look over at Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. After the salutation, notice what he does. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with joy. Or just another one. Just go over to Colossians chapter 1. Following the salutation, listen to what he does. Verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Do you realize that nine out of the 13 letters that the Apostle Paul writes, when he finishes the salutation, he stops and he says, I thank God for you. 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 But it's not there in the book of Galatians. You know what's not there? Because the Apostle Paul, deep within himself, is troubled by what he knows is going on, what he has heard is going on in Galatia, and he writes back with a tone that is unmistakable. It's unmissable. You cannot miss it. That's the right way to say it. You cannot miss it. It's a tone that you cannot miss, and if you're not sure, just look at chapter 4 one more time and look at verse 19. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about how he feels about what's going on. He says, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Now, every mother in this room is thankful that they don't have to labor in birth two or three or four times for the same child. I'm talking about literal, physical laboring in birth two or three or four times for the same child. But that's Paul. Paul says, this is how I feel. I I feel as if I've gone back into labor again for these children. And Paul's tone is very severe and it's very direct. I don't know, you're aware of how you can say something with one tone and it means one thing and you can say something with another tone, the same thing with another tone and it means something altogether different, right? When I was a boy growing up, go out and play in the neighborhood. It was a, you know, a community where houses were rel- relatively close to each other, just small yards. And you go out, so the boys would get together, we'd play together. And you know, when mother would yell for you, you could tell by her tone. You know, if she said, Davy, come home. I knew that meant either, you know, supper is on the table or my homework needs to be done or there are freshly baked cookies in the cookie jar which is the one I always loved best. But there was another tone when my mother said, Davy, get in here now. And I knew that that wasn't going to bode well for the rest of the evening. That it didn't matter whether it was homework or cookies or whatever else that I might have to do, that something is wrong. Paul is using that second tone. He's using a tone where where they know something is wrong. Paul is troubled. There's somebody trifling with the gospel, and this isn't something to laugh about. Listen to the tone. Number two, notice the shock. Just notice the shock. Chapter 1, verse 6 of Galatians, he says, I marvel. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. I marvel. I am amazed. I am utterly shocked. My mouth hangs open. I cannot believe it. Do you understand that uh, the Apostle Paul has been there probably within the last six months in that region? He's been there within the last six months. And so all of this has unfolded in about a six-month period of time. And the Apostle Paul writes back and says, I'm utterly aghast at what's going on in Galatia. I marvel. Look over a page or two in your Bible. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And you continue to, to notice the shock. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. By the way, when he says foolish, he doesn't mean that they're so dull that they can't understand. He means that they're not using their brains. They're not thinking this through. They're not being spiritual and discerning. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Wow. That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. To bewitch means to cast a spell on, and he's using it metaphorically. He's not saying he whipped up a potion, somebody whipped up a potion and they cast a spell. He's using it metaphorically. 
It would be a little bit like somebody who has such a dramatic presentation, who is such an orator, who has such a command of the language, who has such a command of the stage that when they stand up to speak, people just can't help but stop and listen. Who has cast a spell over you that you're listening to these people? You know that Jesus Christ was crucified for your sins and there is nothing else to be added to it. You know that he was resurrected from the grave and there is nothing else to be added to it. You know that. Why are you listening to these people? Why are you paying attention to them? You know better than that. Or or look, if you will, chapter four again, verse nine, and listen to the shock. Notice the shock. Chapter four, verse nine, he says, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it, there's the shock, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? How are you doing this? What in the world is going on? Listen to the tone. Notice the shock. It is no trifling matter to mess with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'd have you, thirdly, to notice or or to review with me the words. We listen to the tone. We notice the shock. We review the words. Listen to the review of the words in verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away. It's translated from a Greek word, a single Greek word, turning away. In classical Greek, it was used of a turncoat. In the military, it was used of somebody who was a deserter. I mean, he marvels. That you're turning away. Will you notice something? When you turn away from the true gospel, do you notice who you turn away from? Verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away. You're a turncoat. You're a deserter. So soon. I was just there within the last six months. From him. When you turn away from the true gospel, you turn away from God himself. When you trifle with the gospel, when you change the gospel... You're turning away from the God who calls you. Notice if you are not only turning away, notice the word different in verse six. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who calls you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. It's the Greek word heteros. We get our word heterodox from it. Something that doesn't conform to the orthodox belief. He's he's saying, listen, you're turning to something. You're becoming a turncoat and a deserter for something that's not even another gospel. I mean, it's not even the truth. It's not anything like the real thing. It's something altogether different. It doesn't even conform in any way to the orthodox beliefs related to the gospel. And then notice the word, if you will, pervert, verse 7, which is not another But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert. It means to distort or to twist, to change from one thing into a different thing. That particular Greek word is used in Acts chapter 2 verse 20 to refer to the sun turning into darkness. It's used in James 4 to talk about turning laughter into mourning. In other words, this gospel that they have begun to embrace from these people who have followed Paul into the the territory of Galatia, this gospel where they're changing and they're they're trifling with with it, they're twisting it and they're changing it. They're turning it into something that isn't the gospel at all. When you review the words, you can only come to the conclusion that Paul is serious about this matter. Why is it we don't take it more serious, the gospel? Why is it we don't take it more serious how people explain the gospel? Why is it we don't take it more serious what the Bible tells us about the gospel, the glory of the gospel? Listen to the tone. Notice the shock. Review the words. Observe the repetition. Verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, not in verse 8, When they were with them, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Wow. He repeats it. By the way, those two verses aren't identical. He uses the plural pronoun we, meaning himself, maybe Barnabas or any of the other apostles, or an angel, one of the angels of God. 
But when you get down to verse 9, he broadens it even beyond. We are an angel. He says, if anyone, anyone, doesn't matter who it is. In, in the first verse, verse 8 there, he, he says, the gospel we preach to you. In verse 9, he talks about the gospel that you've received. I preached it, you received it. But why is he repeating it? For the same reason you repeat to your children, I said, this is what I told you to do. I said, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to tell you one more time because you want them to make sure they get the message. Paul, in essence, is saying, I want to make sure you get the message. You don't trifle with the gospel. You don't mess with the gospel. You don't change the gospel. You don't substitute things into the gospel. You don't add things that aren't in the gospel. Listen, Jesus didn't come to give you a big house and a big boat and a nice car. Jesus came to save you from your sins. And you don't change the gospel. Jesus is not just an addition to a lot of other religious trinkets that you carry like a rabbit's foot in your pocket. Jesus is your only hope. His death, his burial, and his resurrection is your only hope to escape the penalty and the punishment of your own sins. Listen to the tone. Notice the shock. Review the words. Observe the repetition. Fifthly, is is it okay to tamper with the gospel? Listen, feel the distress. Feel the distress. Look at verse 7. He says, which is not another, but there are some who, what's the next word? They trouble you. There are some that trouble you. That word for trouble is used on a number of occasions, but let me give you two illustrations of what I'm talking about. When the wise men came looking for the Christ child, they came to Herod and they said, where is he that's born king of the Jews, right? Where is he that's born king of the Jews? And you remember what it says about Herod? It says, and Herod trembled. He trembled. There's another occasion when it's used that will help you to understand how the Galatians feel because of what has occurred with these other people coming in with the false gospel. And it's found after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sends his disciples across the, uh, across the Sea of Galilee. He tells them to get in the boat, go to the other side. He goes and prays. And while they're in the boat, the wind begins to blow. It's contrary. They're not making any progress. They're out here in the middle of the sea. And they're not going anywhere. The waves are pounding against the boat, over the edges of the boat. And in the middle of all of that storm, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning, in the middle of that storm, in the darkness of that night, someone comes walking on the water. Let me ask you a question. If you saw somebody walking on the water in the middle of a storm in the middle of the night, you think you'd tremble a little bit? If, you, uh, if, if it was dark in your house, all the power was out, and there's a storm raging outside, and the shutters outside are blowing like this and hitting against the house, and something appears in the house with you, other than your husband or your wife, you know what you're going to do? You're, you're going to be disturbed. Even if you don't shake, inside you're shaking. You hear what he says? He says, feel the distress These people have come to you. They've followed in behind me and they have added something to the gospel that is not the gospel and they have changed the gospel. They have trifled with it. They have perverted it. They have turned it into something that it is not. And in the process, they have destroyed that confidence. They've destroyed that assurance. They've destroyed that that peace, that settledness within yourself because of what they've been telling you. That was never the intended purpose. When the gospel comes, can I tell you, when the gospel comes, when you finally understand the gospel and what it does to change your life by the power of God, there's a peace that settles over you. I'll never be perfect, but I'm a child of the living God and nobody can change it. Listen to the tone, notice the shock, review the words, observe the repetition, feel the distress, and one last one, consider the curse. You hear what he says at the end of verses 8 and 9? If you preach another gospel that's not really a gospel at all, he says, let him be accursed. And then he says it again, the end of verse 9. 
If anybody comes preaching a gospel other than the one that you receive from us, let him be accursed. It's a strong word. It's the word that gives us our word anathema. It means devoted to destruction. And it has a range of meaning. On the one hand, it means to be under God's judgment, maybe temporal judgment, immediate judgment. The other end of the extreme is that they would be damned to hell. But somewhere, either at those extremes or somewhere between those extremes, Paul is expressing his greatest possible abhorrence for any other gospel than the one that he preached. He didn't look at people who believed a false gospel or who were believing a false gospel and say, well, at least you're believing something. At least you have something. No, 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 no. When you change the gospel that is explained to us and laid out for us, you say, I don't know what it is, preacher. I've already talked about it several times here. Go back and get the messages. They're all free online. We gave a definition for the gospel in the very first message. When you change the gospel, you trifle with the gospel, you add something to it, you take something away from it, you decide to use regular flour rather than self-rising flour. You end up with a chair that's not really an antique chair belonging to George Whitfield. You end up sitting in something that doesn't have the power to save your soul. And if you are already saved and you change to thinking that way, you're sitting in a chair that no longer gives you the power to live out your faith as God would have you live out your faith. What are you saying to me, preacher? I'm, I, if, if you hadn't gotten it by now, you're not ever going to get it. <laughs> Listen to the tone, notice the shock, review the words, observe the repetition, feel the distress, consider the curse. I'm telling you, what God has given us in the gospel is all we need. We don't touch it, we don't trample it, we don't trifle with it, we don't change it, we don't pervert it, we don't turn it into something else. The gospel is the life of the sinless son of God who was taken unjustly and crucified on a cross and who became sin for us. And God executed his perfect righteousness against our sin on his own son. And Jesus took what we rightfully deserve. He gave up his spirit. They didn't take it from him. He gave up his life. They put him in a tomb. They sealed it shut. They said, we're through with him. We don't have to hear him anymore until Easter Sunday. And on Easter Sunday, Jesus came out of the grave victorious and alive, not in a spirit body, in a physical body. Then he ascended back to the Father, and now anyone, anyone, you, anyone, can come to him and put his or her faith in Jesus Christ, trusting only Jesus. Not Jesus plus baptism, not Jesus plus plus membership in the church. Not, not Jesus plus I'm a friend of the preacher. Not Jesus plus confession in a booth. You come confessing. You come trusting Jesus and Jesus alone. And Jesus saves you. He takes away your sins, forgives you once and for all and forever. He makes you his child. He imparts to you eternal life. He seals you with the presence of the Holy Spirit. He promises you a home with him in heaven. I mean... Wow, his riches become mine. In my poverty, he takes on himself. The poverty of my soul, he takes on himself. And you don't mess with that gospel, friends. That's what Paul is saying in the book of Galatians. He unsheathes his sword and he says, don't mess with this gospel. Should we defend the gospel? I don't have time to take you to these passages. Listen to them. Philippians chapter 1. Just write it down. Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. The Apostle Paul says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains, now listen, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Both of those words, defense and confirmation, are legal terms. One is the negative, the other is the positive. One is defending the gospel against attacks. The other is proclaiming the gospel with proofs, scriptural proofs. 
that this is the gospel. He says a little bit later, that same chapter, Philippians chapter 1, verse 17, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And you say, okay, preacher, I got it. You don't trifle with the gospel. You don't mess with the gospel. The apostle Paul was given the responsibility of defending and confirming the one true gospel, but I'm not the apostle. So that's not my responsibility. So what do you do with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15? It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And I should just stop here and preach a while. Because it means to set him above all other allegiances. To sanctify the Lord in your heart. The heart's the sanctuary. You set your allegiance to him above all other allegiances. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always, this is the word, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for your hope. Every one of us has that responsibility. And here's what disturbs me. We listen to television preachers. We're on television. So I'm talking about me. Well, I'm not because I'm preaching the true gospel. But I'm on television. You're, our church, you're on television sometimes. The back of your heads. Your handwriting notes. Very seldom your faces. When you hear somebody preaching something that's not the gospel, there ought to be antennas that go up in your head that say, wait a minute, that's not true. We have become so pluralistic. We've become so pluralistic believing that it's okay. Every, every, road, every road leads to Rome. Every way leads to God ultimately. That we have lost sometimes the uniqueness of the gospel as the only way. And if it's the only way, you don't want to mess with it and try to trifle with it and try to change it. Okay, preacher, I got it. You don't mess with the gospel. You preach it, you talk about it, you tell it, so forth. It's exactly what it says. It's a dangerous thing to mess with the gospel of Christ. I understand. Paul was a defender of the gospel. We're supposed to be defenders of the gospel. So how do I do that? Well, first of all, we defend it when we know the gospel ourselves. We defend it when we know the gospel ourselves. We have to know the scriptures for ourselves. Here's the problem. Too many in our churches today, I hope it's not true in this one, too many in our churches today are biblically, hear me, they're biblically illiterate. And when they hear something that's not the gospel, they don't even know it's not the gospel. How many times have I been told by people who belong to this religion who believes Jesus and Lucifer were sometime in the past, spirit, spirit brothers, how many times have I been told, but we believe in Jesus, but we believe in Jesus. Yeah, but it's not the same Jesus. That'd be like me having the name Jesus and saying, believe in me, just believe in me, just believe in me. Would that get you to heaven? And absolutely would not get you to heaven. We must know the gospel. We must know the tenets of the gospel. We must know those anchor points of the gospel. We must know what the gospel says. We must be able to clearly delineate the gospel. Can you tell somebody else the gospel? We must know it. To defend it, we must share the gospel. If we're going to defend the gospel, we've got to share the gospel. You say, what do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Let's say you had three seeds of a particular plant. How do you protect those three seeds? I know what you do with them, at least at my house, what what I do with them. I take them and I put them in a box or in a can or a glass jar. I make sure it's, you know, there's a lid on it and they're kept inside. I put them on a shelf and I try to make sure that it's not too cold and it's not too hot and I hold on to those seeds. Is that the way you preserve seeds? You preserve seeds by sowing them. Because when you sow the true seed, when you sow the seed, what happens? It produces a plant that brings a multitude of other seeds that can be sown. 
In other words, the more you share the one true gospel, the more it spreads to others. It spreads to others so that others are impacted by the gospel. If you're not sharing the gospel, you're a part of those who are not defending the gospel. When I was growing up as a boy, we had Bermuda grass everywhere. In the the deep south, Bermuda grass was popular because it, it could withstand the heat. And people liked Bermuda grass because it would, no matter how hot it was in the summer, it was okay. It would it'd be okay. But something I learned about Bermuda grass when I was working at the golf course where I worked as a teenager, that that Bermuda grass, the healthier it was, the more it choked out the ability of weeds to grow up. When the grass was not healthy, then it left cracks in the grass for weeds to be able to grow up. The more we share the gospel... The more there's a network of people sharing the true gospel everywhere they go, the healthier it is and the less possibility there is for the false gospel to grow up around it. We defend it by knowing the gospel. We defend it by sharing the gospel. May I say finally, we defend it by living the gospel. Again, I can't take you back to Galatians chapter 1 and spend my time there. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. When you go home, I want you to take Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. And I want you to read all the way through the rest of that chapter into the first part of chapter 2. You say, what's it telling me? You're going to read the Apostle Paul's own personal account of how the gospel was communicated to him and how the gospel changed him. What you're reading when you read those verses is the dramatic change in Paul's life that was only explained by the gospel. There was no other way to explain Paul's life and the changes in Paul's life except for the gospel. When people see your life, do they say, oh, well, he just straightened himself up. He he just sort of, you know, he got a hold of himself somewhere along the way, pulled himself up by his bootstraps and really just got better. Or do they say, you know what? I would not have believed what God did in that man's life. Only the gospel could have changed his or her life in that fashion. Only the gospel could have done that. We don't credit our church. We don't credit the preacher. We credit the gospel that changes people's lives. So let me ask you a question. What, who are you trusting today for your eternal life? Who, what are you depending on? Are you depending on your good works, your baptism, the fact that you've been to a confessional, that you count the rosary? Are you depending on something that's religious? Or are you depending on the gospel? The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as your only hope. Jesus has done it all. And my only hope is that I trust in Jesus to be my Savior. Friend, if you've never trusted in Jesus, I implore you. The gospel, you may think your life is too far gone, but I've got great news for you. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And the gospel has the power to change the worst possible person's life that you ever imagined. And the gospel can change even those of you that think you're pretty good when the reality is you're just as much a sinner as the worst possible person you think of. The gospel has the power to change your life, but you've got to come to Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible, and you've got to trust that Jesus for yourself.